2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: Hey, everybody. Before starting the show, I wanted to say that today's episode deals with complex and emotional issues. We touch on depression, anxiety, and even suicide. If these words resonate with you or you feel like your life is spinning out of control, please consider the resources we mention and find the pertinent links in today's show notes. Those notes can be found at the newly renovated earn and website that not only contains links for each episode, but also bonus blog and video content. Sign up for our mailing list or leave us a voicemail by pressing the buttons at the top or bottom of the homepage. We are preparing a coming episode with audience questions about personal finance, the earn and invest podcast, and even me, Doc G. Leave us a voicemail with your questions and you might even get to hear your own voice on the show. Hope you enjoyed today's episode.
4: Hi, this is Jennifer Ma.
2: This is Melanie Locker. This is Wendy Mays.
4: I'm Diana Merriam. And today we are going to earn and invest in our mental health with the fabulous
1: Doc G.
3: My mom was in bed, and it was the middle of the day. I was a teenager. And she had just made the incredibly difficult decision to leave her safe, employed job and to go into her own accounting practice. It was something she had dreamed about her whole life. But after making the decision, she spiraled into a horrible depression. It wasn't the first time she had gone through this. When my father had died, and left us in a precarious financial situation, and she was just about to start her professional life, she went through something similar. And then looking back, when she was a teenager, there was that episode that she always remembers where she didn't want to leave her room for months on end. Two of these three episodes had a definite financial flavor, but not all. Clearly, mental health is something we deal with in our lives. Sometimes it doesn't even feel like it has a cause. But then other times, it's intimately tied to what we're experiencing in life at that time. Life, mental health, finances. I almost feel like it's a chicken and an egg question. Which comes first? And more importantly, how do we help ourselves and help others when they're facing these difficult situations? And speaking of money and mental health, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com, that's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com, and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Melanie Lockhart is the podcaster at the Mental Health and Wealth Show. She has been on my show before, talking very openly about depression and suicide awareness. Melanie, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me back.
3: It's wonderful to have you. These are taboo subjects, and I've always appreciated the fact that you are willing to be vocal about these things that often people don't want to talk about.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think it's super important to kind of shed light to these topics that are often in the dark.
3: Diana Miriam is the Chief Economist. She is the creator of the Economy Conference, which was an amazing success this March. I am happy to call her my friend and excited to have her on this panel today. Diana, what's going on?
4: Oh, you know, just living the dream here in Cincinnati.
3: (laughs) Always. I really enjoyed Cincinnati when I went and visited there for the conference. It's a pretty cool city.
4: I love it. Absolutely love it here.
3: Jennifer Ma. What can I say about Jennifer Ma besides that, of course, I love her. She is a wonderful person. I've had the joy of seeing her on my Facebook feed quite a bit as she has been doing a lot of community events for the Choose FI podcast. One of our most treasured voices here in the personal finance community. Jennifer, what's up?
1: to see you doc it's good to be on this panel and this is a discussion that's near and dear to my heart because of my own personal journey thank you so much for inviting me
3: we are so happy to have you and of course wendy mays one of the first podcasts i really got into in the personal finance space house of fi wendy now i see you all over youtube but you've transitioned a little bit how do you like doing video
0: i love it i i feel like that is of where I'm going to sit for a while. I, I, there's just something about being able to look into the camera like I'm looking into whoever's watching and have a connection. It's just a different, different way of doing things. And I really like it.
3: It's amazing. I look at the evolution of content creation. I was one of those way back when bloggers when I started writing mm-hmm. about medicine in 2004, 2005 when I moved up to podcasting, I really thought I was technologically moving forward (laughs) only to realize that the world has gone video. So it's great seeing you and how you've transitioned so quickly. Let's talk about mental health and finances. I asked, is this a chicken or an egg problem? And I think it's gonna take a lot for us to get to the bottom of this. But before we do... I almost feel like we have to talk about our worst moments. In the intro story, I talked about my mother's worst moment. My worst moment was actually when I realized I was financially independent. And as opposed to making me excited, that gave me an identity crisis that set me spinning for months, maybe even years, before I got a hold and was able to calm myself down. Melanie, let's start with you. Tell us about your worst moment when oh. you realized mental health was really an issue for you.
2: I would say my mental health issues really came to the forefront when I was 16 years old. So, you know, like a lot of high schoolers felt kind of like teenage angst and you know that kind of thing, but it just started getting worse to the point where I would be wanting to hurt myself or I would have these constant depressing thoughts. I would go into fits of tears. And then I knew I had a problem when I started thinking about ways that I wanted to die. And it was pathological and sick. And I mean that to say that I was sick at that time. Like to have to fantasize about doing that, you know, in retrospect is really like, oh, wow. And so I finally told my parents, and that was really, really difficult because my mom actually lost her father by suicide, and <laughs> I'm her only daughter. And so, you know, that was really extremely difficult for her to just even think, I've lost my father when I was five, and now I might lose my only daughter to this. You know, that was really horrible and something that I feel like you know I can never kind of forget that impact on her but they were really supportive and got me into therapy and on medication and you know that I kind of got out of it as I got help and then kind of like morphed into adulthood and finding my own voice and everything and then my next big episode was kind of right after grad school I had $81,000 in student loan debt I had a fancy degree from NYU and I thought I'm going to, you know, get a great job in the arts and pay it back and be successful. And I could not find a full-time job. And then I moved to Portland, Oregon, and all I could find were jobs making 10 to $12 an hour. And then I ended up briefly on food stamps and I thought, this is not the life that I had imagined for myself at all. And I was so depressed because in our culture we put so much emphasis on our career, on our income, on you know, our status. And then I also felt a lot of guilt and shame because I knew that I was choosing to go into debt for this fancy degree. I knew that. But my confidence and my ability to pay it back and get a good job was, you know, the same. So I was like, oh, it's cool. I'll pay it back. And I'll get a good job and it'll be fine. And then when that didn't happen, I just felt so much shame and guilt. Like it was my fault that I did this. And like, I'm such a loser for going to get a master's in the arts. And now I can't find a job. And now like, I feel like this debt is eating me alive. And I feel like I'm going to be beholden to this debt for the rest of my days. And when you start thinking that your life is not your own and that it, Is you're dead, and that every hour that you're working, every hour that you're alive is just to like feed the beast. It's really depressing. And so I would say all of 2012, I was in a deep depression, crying every single day. I got counseling through a local college, and you know, that kind of helped a little bit, but just kind of like to maintain. And I would say what really kind of helped is I just finally just got sick of where I was. And I was like, I can't be in this mental space anymore. And I, I I discovered personal finance blogs. And, you know, I kind of thought, what if I was taking all of this energy of me crying and you know, obsessing and, you know, being on this hamster wheel, what if I put that into something creative? And so I started my blog, Dear Debt, which really, truly changed my life in every way. And, you know, you can read my first post, which is up there and it's, know kind of funny to look back, but you can kind of hear the desperation and sadness, but also the resolve. Like I just made a choice. Like if I want to get out of this mood, the only, you know, kind of choice is to get out of debt. And you know, luckily I was able to get out of debt um, in twenty fifteen. So the blog really helped expedite my process and I side hustled all the time and you know worked really hard and I'll totally admit like my mental health has gone through the roof since paying off my debt because I don't have that constant weight, this constant buzzing anxiety. But of course, you know, once you pay off debt, doesn't mean like you don't have any other problems in life. So like a couple of years later, I went into another deep depression for a variety of life issues. And then I kind of realized my nine year partnership was coming to an end. And, you know, sometimes like, when something like that happens, it's a, it's not an easy decision. It's a, it's something that happens over time. And so it took me a while to be like, Oh, this is the issue. I think part of the depression there is like, you're holding on so tight to this idea. Like we're going to be together forever. Like we love each other. This is like, we're going to be old. And like, then that doesn't happen. And then you have to actually like let that go and literally start a new life over. You know, that whole year of before making that decision, making that decision, and after that decision, I was completely depressed and in grief mode for a lot of different reasons. And yeah, so I've had, you know, three kind of major depressive episodes. I would say I've had other milder, you know, episodes. And then I would say currently anxiety is like, I'm the winner here. depression, who are you? Anxiety is here to stay. So (laughs) that's what I'm going through now.
3: Diana, as I listened to Melanie, I realized there are different types of depressions and anxieties. Some feel innate or how we'd explain clinical. They seem to come out of nowhere. A lot of people describe them during childhood that it just came on them and all of a sudden they felt horrible And then there seem to be more situational depressions and anxieties where life events bring us to that place. You, Diana, have been vocal about hitting a wall in your Planning of the Economy conference. It sounded like situationally you hit a place of mental health distress Tell us about some of your worst moments. Was this one of them, or have you had other types of depression, anxiety in the past?
4: Yeah, I think that this was a situation that almost brought to the forefront deeply held ingrained beliefs that probably have been torturing me for a long time. I think I've always put a lot of pressure on myself to perform, and you know, I can remember growing up being a straight A student, like never got a B. And the thought of getting a B was like terrifying to me. I think that my sense of self-worth was really tied up in achievement. And, you know, different situations and circumstances in your life can bring that to the forefront over time. I think economy was one of the riskiest things I've ever done financially. And so I did not anticipate that it was going to throw me into a deep depression because for a long time it was so exciting that I was doing this new thing and I really did not see that coming. I think that when I look at my corporate career and kind of the, the stresses of working for an employer and the line of work that I do, I, th- I had thought that I had the skill set emotionally to be an entrepreneur and it wasn't until I actually tried it that I realized that it, it's a whole new set of tools that I didn't realize I didn't have. And so it was, it was painful. It was painful to go through that process, to struggle with the uncertainty, to really come face to face with these beliefs about how you have to hustle, how you have to work hard at every single moment. You can't let up. You can't take a break. I, I mean, I still don't know how to rest. And I think that's a lot has has to do with that level of angst over needing to perform. It's hard for me to articulate it. It's you know, what are those deeply held beliefs that kind of derail you when you're trying a new thing? I think that I had instilled in me just the way that I talked myself is very negative almost the assumptions that you have or what you believe is going to happen in the future can be very negative. And so something doesn't go right and you start to spiral into this story about how everything else is going to go wrong. And the reality is that it's just all unknown. It could go really wrong or it could go better than you could expect. Maybe you know that thing that you perceive as bad right now isn't actually bad. It's just a mental distortion. And I've kind of had to I think economy has forced me to look at those things a lot more closely than some of my circumstances in the past.
3: Jennifer, when I hear Diana tell her story about economy, some of the words she uses make me think of you. The pressure of expectations, both internally and externally, as well as the stories we tell ourselves about
1: ourselves.
3: Tell me about your story and expectations and how that played into mental health distress with you.
1: I think I'm gonna have to tell you a little bit about my background and history with mental illness and anxiety and depression. One, I do believe that I see a history of that in my family. I grew up in an abusive household. And I made some really tough decisions as a child and became and willfully willingly was given an opportunity to separate from my abusive mom. And I chose to not live with her. And that's a really hard decision in terms of expectations, because in doing so, I was no longer the ideal Chinese devoted daughter. It goes against everything that that role expects. And for me, expectations came from so many different areas. The expectation of who I was outside of the house versus the expectations of what I was inside the house when I was living with my mother. So outside of the house in American society in general, we prize individualism. When I come home, there's a culture in which you are not the individual. The individual doesn't matter. It is what you can do for the whole that matters. And there's so many other cultural identities. And then you have to do this dynamic shift back and forth. And so many people navigate that. That wasn't the issue, but it complicated the situation. And my mother never really fully, in my humble opinion, I'll say this now, I think she did the best she could, given her pain, given her circumstances and understanding of the world. And I still have an estranged relationship with my mother which is fine. Actually, it's actually better for me because of toxicity, right? You've got to make these decisions and set boundaries. And that was a hard boundary for me. But for years, I, I managed the expectation of I needed to do something that was healthy for myself at 12. At 12, I decided to not go back and live with my mother because I had more opportunities, more options if I stayed where I was. And that caused a huge rift in my family. And I navigated back and forth for years trying to be as dutiful as I could. So when I was 12, my sister committed suicide. And um would I say that that was a pivotal pardon me. There are days when I could talk about her death, and it's like it happened to another person. And there are days when I speak for death, and it's just fresh. So Fear and expectation. I, some of it is managing my own. Some of it is managing what other people expected of me. In some weird way, I thought I was supposed to actually become so successful that I could take care of my entire family financially. So I grew up on welfare. And I hated the free food. I would never eat the free food in the cafeterias. Um, at school. At school. It was it was just a really interesting life. And so I'm going to fast forward. So I think my sister's death really brought forth any issues I may have had emotionally in terms of sadness. I was really depressed, but functional. I don't know what to call it. I guess I was depressed and functional through high school. The positive affirmations I got from my teachers were incredible. I think they helped me keep going. But my own expectation is... Why have I not succeeded? Why haven't I solved the world's problems? Why haven't I made millions and millions of dollars to take care of my family? Um, Why haven't I affected a positive change in the world? So I thought about suicide a lot through high school. Um, And it wasn't until, I don't know, I was 16 that I decided I really needed help. Because like Melanie, I actually did some cutting. Actually, you never said cutting, but I did some cutting, and I didn't know why. It's like I felt I needed to feel something, but in hindsight, I guess it's endorphins. You know, you, you get a few endorphins from, from the pain, you know, but nothing serious. But I knew that I was thinking about suicide a lot because I felt like I was never going to get ahead. <laughs> so I actually told my family I really needed to go see a therapist, and that's really unusual. Because Chinese-Americans or Asian-Americans are not likely. It's back in that day and time. You know, remember I'm old as dirt. Seeking mental health services was not the thing that Asian-Americans did. You know, we were the population that least waved our hand when we were in trouble and needed assistance. It's also a matter of pride. I was raised that the only emotion that was allowed in the house as a little kid was happiness, or contentedness everything else was not allowed and then there's that idea of stoicism you know you, you, you have you heard of that phrase like keeping your face you know your public yeah yeah so there was no way in the world I was gonna tell anyone outside of my own internal struggle that I was having issues so at 16 I, about 16 I told my family I think I really needed to uh, seek help and luckily they found me a counselor and that did help And then, so that, that really, that, that got me through high school. And then I had an incident in college that made me spiral down again. You think you made it, you're out of your childhood. You're onto this next future and you're assaulted or rather it's date rape and and that changes the way you look at the world. And so for a few years, I was so depressed It's still suicidal. And I did come back and get help because I learned, you know, talking to someone would really help. So how does debt play into my story of anxiety and mental health and depression? So here's the thing. I thought I'd made it when I got married and my husband and I had a mortgage and cars and whatever, and we racked up credit card debt and And it got worse when he decided to leave the military and I told him that I could support him while he was going through school and I was the only income. And all I could see was our debt piling up while I kept working and I couldn't do anything about it. And it interfered with my marriage. It made me resent him, which I hate. I don't like resenting people. It blocks love. I think resentment blocks love more than anything. And so I turned over the finances to him. And I'm going to continue to fast forward because there's been a lot of stuff in my life. He wouldn't get a job and he wouldn't, he told me he would work part-time. I'm like, I'll help you. Let me help you with your resume, whatever. Could you just get a part-time job? Anything would help me out emotionally because I was feeling insecure. Like I didn't know if we could continue on and we kept building up credit card debt. So eventually he refused the part-time job. I offered to help him find scholarships. I found a whole slew of them. I told him if he wrote essays, I would totally help him rewrite and, and, you know, craft them. And then he wouldn't do that. And then I said, why don't we take out a student loan? I'll co-sign that loan. And actually the best thing he ever did was he never took me up on that. And I, I thank him for that very much. I don't know if it was just a power struggle in our marriage, but I'm very thankful he never took me up on that. Continue forward, we get divorced and then I had negotiated to keep the house because I don't know why I just felt like I needed a place of my own. And there were so many changes already going, but the divorce was hard because just like Melanie talked about in terms of looking at your partner and going, this is the person that you're going to build your life with your hopes and dreams. In this house, I felt like I was grieving all the time because all the little deaths of, um, the children that would never be, the family that you'll never have, came to the forefront. And then coupled with the fact that I was on disability at the time, and was not working, recovering from two hand surgeries, I petitioned my doctor to let me out of disability early so I can get a job because I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to take care of myself? There was that stress. And then through a series of layoffs and I just started to start a startup of my own, my own little consultancy. And it was great. And here's the problem. I did not have any emergency fund. I was bootstrapping it. And there were months that I didn't have any work and I lived on my credit cards. And then at one point, the work dried up so much that I couldn't make my mortgage payment, but I couldn't get myself out of the funk. It's like, there was no work depression, no energy to do the things you need to do to go find work. And all I could feel was worthless. And eventually I lost the house, not in a bad way, like, like foreclosure. It could have been so much worse. I had a distressed sale and luckily for me, the house actually had some equity in it. So I was able to negotiate my debt. My credit score was already tanked guys. So (laughs) I negotiated my debt and tried to start over again but it actually took me a couple of years to feel like I'm in a safe place to start over. But during that time frame, where there was no work, all the bills were piling up. I didn't want to open any of the mail. I dodged phone calls from dead collectors and I thought, Oh my God, I'm worth more dead than I am alive. Why am I here? And then I was sort of, I was really depressed again, because after I sold my house, I asked my family, you know, I don't quite know where to go. Could I come and live with you for a few months? I will pay you because I have some proceeds from the home until I can just sort of be situate. And they said no. And that was really hard to hear. I have never asked them again about it. And I still have a relationship with them because they're my family. And I don't have a lot of family. So I'm going to keep that relationship. But they said no. So I found an apartment. And I spent some money of the, from the proceeds and I got a part-time job and I tried to rebuild my life. But I will tell you now, there have been many times when I thought the world would be better off and I would be better off if, if I could stop this pain. And the only thing, and maybe this is this is so weird, you guys, I don't know, maybe this makes me really odd. But the only thing I thought about was if I could just, every year I had like a milestone, like... My sister died when she was 19, and I just said, if I could just live until I'm 19, then I would be- I would have beaten my sister. Isn't that sad? It's ridiculous. So I would just keep telling myself, I-, I can't be weak. I can't be weak. I've got to live. But I didn't have a sense of purpose, and I didn't know what that would look like. And so I'm very well acquainted with depression, anxiety, and money, just from the my background of growing up in scarcity.
3: So the awkwardness of doing this type of episode in today's coronavirus shelter-in-place distance atmosphere is these are difficult, courageous conversations. And unlike other times in life, when we're doing this privately, we can't put our arms around each other or put our hands on each other's shoulders And show that physical contact of support. So first and foremost, thank you all for having these conversations. Wendy, I see on your faces, I'm listening to these stories, these disparate stories that share commonalities, and yet each of us is our own individual person with our own individual story. This connects with you and your experience, doesn't it?
0: Oh, all of it. Like, I'm having a hard time keeping it together just cuz I feel that, you know. <laughs> and I just have to say I love you, Jen. <laughs> like you're loved and you're just Thanks, You're just an incredible contribution to this community and and the world as a whole. So know that. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't even have an awareness of that I was depressed or that I was suffering from anxiety until I was about 46 years old and I'm in my house and I'm coming down the stairs and I just burst into tears and my husband looks at me and says, I I, I exclaimed to him, I said, I think I'm depressed. And he's like, yeah, you are. And that was the moment where I decided to seek out help about it. And in in talking with my doctor, and just kind of voicing out loud all of the things that were was happening in our lives. At that time, we were in a million dollars worth of debt. We had just recently adopted four of our children. I was commuting back and forth between California and Arizona to keep my practice, my law practice going so that I could service this million dollars in debt because without my job, we couldn't do that. I was also hating my, my job. I, I wanted to leave my practice and quit being a lawyer and be home with my kids desperately, but I couldn't. And so we were just in a place of financial hopelessness and, and that's what it felt like was hopelessness. Also, at the same time, we had just gone through this election, and there was just this polarization of everybody, people that we cared about, and as a, as a biracial family, and have just adopted all of our boys are, are Black, and my husband's Black, and my oldest children are, are biracial. I just felt this betrayal of people that we loved and cared about because I couldn't grasp how people could love us and love our family and care about us, but support something that was just so opposite to that. And so it caused a huge rift between me and my dad, who was my, he's the reason I am who I am. it? <laughs> The, the willingness to to speak up and speak out and be strong and independent. And so just to have that rift with him where I felt like he chose politics over family was just extremely difficult. And then on top of that, my mom was getting sicker and sicker and she had early onset of Alzheimer's. And so it was grieving loss of her even though she was still alive so there was just all of this stuff that was culminating at the same time and my doctor she said you know it sounds like you've probably had depression and anxiety your whole life but you were just very good at managing it and that was a light bulb moment for me because then I could go back and look over different moments in my life in my teenage years and my years in college and just this deep insecurity about who I was which drove my want to succeed to get through law school to do just these big things and accomplish these big things and so then to have it all kind of just explode or implode It was difficult, but I'm also very thankful and grateful for finally having that awareness because it allowed me to get medication, which I know not everybody chooses that route. They choose more like therapy and counseling and all that. And it's like, do whatever works for you. For me, it was medication. I always felt underneath the surface that there was this rolling boil and that any moment it was going to spill over. And that's not a fun way to live life. And so it just helped that rolling boil calm to maybe a slow boil. (laughs) It's still there. It's still ever present. And so I did really, I did a, a lot better after seeking help. And I'm very glad that I, I did. But then I had a second kind of bout of depression where it was it was more of a, an experience that I'd never had before and that was after FinCon last year. And I think kind of what just triggered that was a lot of the insecurity again of going to this event and not feeling like I belonged and not because of my social anxiety, not being able to participate in things like I wanted to, um, not being able to approach people and talk to people the way I wanted to. And so instead I just retreated, but I needed to do that. But then coming back from FinCon and I just, I couldn't leave my room. I'm trying to take care of my family and take care of my boys. And I didn't want to leave just the safety and comfort of my room and that lasted for a couple of months and I don't even know how I came out of it but I did and I can see definitely times where that still happens and I've just come to terms with it that this is part of my life and I have to manage it yeah so that's it that's my story <laughs> I'm managing managing my depression.
3: In the first half of the show, Jennifer, Diana, Melanie, and Wendy talk about some of their worst moments with depression and anxiety. After the break, we discuss the connection between mental and financial health. But first, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com, that's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Melanie, I'm an analytic person. I love cause and effect. And as I'm listening to your amazing stories, I want to draw a line between finances and mental health, and at times I feel like I'm so close, and then at other times I feel like I'm completely far away. Is there an interplay? Can we define the role of our finances and how they affect how we feel about ourselves and our lives?
2: I think there's absolutely an interplay and I think it goes both directions. I think your mental health can affect your money and the way that you spend money, the way you manage money. And I also think your money, you know, if you're in lots of debt, if you're income insecure can affect your mental health as well. Like, you know, in my experience, when I had all of this debt and I was income insecure, I was completely depressed and anxious and constantly felt like, how am I ever going to get out of this? And then You know, going through my breakup, I was grieving and extremely depressed for something that was situational. And I'll admit, I didn't save any money that following year because I was just, I lost $20,000 in income because I wasn't able to work that much because I was literally stuck in bed for three months. I was just, Buying takeout, like I subsisted on like jamba juice like once a day for like two months and lost 20 pounds. Um, you know, I just like I mean, it was a privileged position, but like I was like, I don't care about money right now, and like I don't care about saving, I don't care, like I'm just trying to survive. And I think a lot of people get in that mode, and so I think they're totally intertwined. And I think the people that think that they're not are in a good place financially or mental health wise that they don't realize that but then as soon as one thing can get off balance they're going to see it for sure and so for people who are like oh I don't see the relationship you probably have a good job you probably have a good income you probably have a safety net with your family and maybe you don't have any genetic predisposition to mental health issues like I do or you, know, you have a stable situation in your life and so you don't experience that right now but I think, you know, I always look back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, there's like, if you're just stuck on the survival level, you're not going to get to self-actualization, you're just going to be constantly trying to survive. And it's going to take, you know, it's going to have an impact on your mental health as well as your money.
1: Yeah, I agree with Melanie completely that there is a distinct correlation and relationship between money financial insecurity and depression and anxiety. And I use Maslow's hierarchy of needs all the time. And when you're in desperate, in survival mode, there's an undue amount of exhaustion mentally, emotionally, and trying to figure out what's the next step to just keep the roof over your head or to feed yourself. We can also use money and buying and debt to feed ourselves or bring comfort to yourself it's not that I didn't know that I was spending money sometimes, but sometimes it felt like I want to do something really nice to make myself feel better. So I would go and buy something even when I really didn't have the money. And that became that little bit of a cycle where I'd be down and I'd want to go buy something because for that one moment, maybe I could cause the pain to, you know, to, to recede a little bit or the depression to recede a little bit. And it was never fulfilling ever. and yet. You know, oh, if I have this shiny object, maybe I could be happy for this one moment. Or when I succeed, maybe I could buy this shiny object. So, that whole interplay of rewarding yourself with something you purchase or giving yourself comfort. If you use money as that tool or new objects, then I think that you can see that there's a cycle, especially if you can't manage debt, if you have financial insecurity.
3: Diana, I feel like we're back to that chicken and egg question, and maybe it's overly simplistic is money problems causing mental health distress or is mental health distress causing money problems can we parse it out
4: i agree with the other comments that i think they're very much related i think that depending on how you know deep you're going into depression something can certainly instigate it but yeah when you're you know in debt or struggling to dig out of a tough financial position. You know, you need energy to to be able to do that. You need to have a certain level of optimism. You need to be able to see opportunities as they present themselves. And when you're trying to look for that through this cloud of depression, you kind of end up making it worse. I know when I struggle with depression, one of the things I try to do is I call it mental gymnastics. I, I may not necessarily believe what I'm telling myself, but it, it, I just try because it's better than stewing in it sometimes. So for example, you know, I'll tell myself I'm going for a walk right now. I don't think it's going to make me feel better, but maybe it'll help it from getting worse. You know, I, I think there are like small things that you can do to, um, try to combat what's happening, but yeah, it, it to to more directly answer your question they're absolutely intertwined because you're trying to navigate an already tough situation through a cloud and then from the other side of it you know let's say you are not in a tough financial position like i i think this was probably me through my worst depression i had a good income i had savings i was taking a pretty big risk on economy but i knew it wasn't going to bankrupt me but at the same time you know digging into getting myself into this depression where i was in bed for 5 months i mean if i lost my job you know due to that then that's my mental health causing my financial issues so I really do think that they go hand in hand, and there's no real easy answer for it but i I think these kinds of conversations can help people see that, yes, it's a tough situation, but talking about things and recognizing that you're a lot- not alone and that also it does get better. I think that's one of the hardest things about depression is that you really feel like you're never going to come out on the other side of it and So having conversations like this where you're, and it's also a taboo thing. It was very embarrassing for me to admit that I was depressed to my colleagues, to the people who thought that I was like, you know, oh, you've, you know, you're going to crush it on this conference. You're doing such a great job. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, actually, I've been laying in bed, like scared of everything. Like, I don't want to admit that. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. So to, to be able to kind of talk openly about it with people that you look up to and that you respect and that you can see, oh, this really successful person over here also struggles with mental health stuff and it doesn't actually destroy their whole life. There's maybe, there's maybe hope for me.
1: Oh, there's so much stigma in that, and you know the funny thing is that I never told anyone I was going through any of that. Even like my friends knew that I was going through a divorce, but I never told them that I was having money difficulties because I was ashamed. I was supposed to have all my cred together, and and it was embarrassing. And the mental gymnastics, I totally get that because feeling like you're productive, like the mental gymnastics for me, we like, I just need to get out of bed. Here's my little short to-do list. The victory is in showering today and putting on clothes. The victory is in making a phone call or to open this piece of mail, you know, or, or to take action. That fake it till you make it. I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about it because sometimes I think it totally helped me, you know, because if I fake it, I make it. It's that cognitive psychology, right? That cognitive therapy. If I do this action, then I'm going to feel this particular way. But it felt like such a lie, such a lie. And yeah, I just never told my family and I I totally get it. And my friends actually didn't find out that I had all of these thoughts after my divorce. And when I sold the house and they all yelled at me. And the only time they found out about it is after I joined the financial independence community and came out of the online shadows, if you will, and started sharing that, you know, I I had this loss that was very devastating as I felt like a loser.
0: I think one of the things that prevented us from progressing in us getting out of debt was that, you know, that's not something that you want to admit to anybody, let alone yourselves that, that you've gotten to this place of such a big number of debt where, you know, you're, you're supposed to be the successful person and how could you have gotten yourself into the situation? You make great money. You, you know, on the, on the outside looking in, you should be in a very different place. But when I found the financial independence community, that was kind of the light bulb moment for us is that there, there are things that we can do. There is action that we can take and kind of that, you know, doing something was what gave us hope and allowed us to be more open about our situation in the hopes that others could see that debt doesn't have to be in your life forever. You don't have to carry it to your graves, which is where we were. That's what we felt. So being able to actually see that there was something that we could do about it was one of the ways that we were able to get over that feeling of failure about our debt.
3: I think this is a perfect time to transition to this idea of what we can do about this situation. Whether we can make a direct line or not, mental health and finances are intimately connected. Melanie, I'm going to ask you to use your two hats One hat is of a content creator. So what can we do as content creators to help with these issues? But also as a content consumer, what do we need to do to help ourselves when they're in the midst of these horrible situations? Start as a content creator. What can we do to help our readers slash listeners with these issues?
2: So I think it's important as a content creator to really meet your audience where they are and realize that your audience is probably diverse and not in the same situation. What I have learned through Dear Debt and Mental Health and Wealth, and my event Lola Retreat, is that there are far more many situations, you know, in the personal finance world, and like a lot of nuanced finance situations that are not captured by financial media. And I don't think there you know, easy to capture either because they are so nuanced and specific to that person, to that culture, to that family, to that individual, to that income, to that job. And I think it's really important for us to kind of realize that there is that level of nuance because I work as a personal finance writer, like as a job, you know, as a self-employed career, besides being a content creator blogger. And all of the articles I have to write are like general, you know, we're kind of speaking to like a general populace. But I'll be honest, a lot of it excludes people from lower income. It probably excludes a lot of people from higher income, like the higher strategies, which is like kind of where the FI community comes in. But a lot of it is very general. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a level of nuance in personal finance that we may or may not be able to see. It's important to assume that not everyone is in your situation or that they have different beliefs. And I think it's important that we acknowledge the intrinsic intertwine of mental health and money. That's just my personal belief that they're intertwined. They're not able to be separate. Kind of like, you know, your physical and mental health aren't able to be separate. Same thing is my opinion. And because of that, it's like, how can we promote financial wellness? What does that look like? Also, how can we promote mental health in a way that makes sense and that is easy? And so as a content creator and actually – selfishly for myself a couple of weeks ago I launched the mental health and wealth challenge which was to spend 13 minutes a day on self-care for seven days in a row and so that was doing the signature seven-minute workout doing a five-minute meditation and spending one minute a day checking your finances and I started it mostly for myself because I was like I'm in quarantine and I still feel like I'm not taking care of myself because I don't have time and I was like okay I can commit to 13 minutes a day. I spend more than 13 minutes a day on Instagram. I can spend 13 minutes a day on myself. And like, it was really good for me to do. And because I did better with accountability, I just decided to turn it into a challenge and to put it, you know, forward facing into the community. And a lot of people like, I love this. This is great. And it's like, it's something simple and digestible and also actionable, right? And kind of to Jennifer's point, like if you are depressed already, doing anything is a monumental task, but like if you can spend 13 minutes, okay, seven minutes on the workout, five minute meditation. I spent one minute looking at my bank account and my credit card transactions. So I know where my money's going. I can identify any fraud. I can identify patterns. That's what I've done today to manage my mental health and wealth. And so I think having actionable things like that, are really important. I also think having resources for communities that run the gamut. So I think, like I said, I think a lot of lower income communities are completely left out of the personal finance conversation. And so there's also a site that I recommend called Aunt Bertha, Bertha AuntBertha.com. It's called the Social Care Network. And you can put in your zip code and they offer like a ton of resources on like where to find job help, where to find food help, where to find, you know, healthcare help. So, I think that's a great place to start. And then also letting people know about the crisis text line. Uh, the crisis text line is 741-741. I've personally used the service and it's great. So you can just text home to 741-741. You can reach a crisis counselor. And they even confirmed this with on their social media channel like a week ago. And I know this from experience that you can be in any type of crisis you know, which is a crisis to you to reach out to them. Like a lot of people feel like, oh, I have to be suicidal to get help. Like, but I'm not there yet. So what is there for me? And the crisis text line is a great kind of place for that. Cause it's like, you don't have to be suicidal to reach out to them, but you're in crisis, whatever that means to you. And it's also great to be over text because, I don't know about anybody else, but like when I'm in that crisis mode, I'm crying. I can barely talk. So it's like, I can't call a hotline per se and like be productive. So I'll just be like, ooh, ooh, you know? so like having texts, you know, was really helpful. So I recommend that as well. And then I also recommend open path collective for therapy. That's how I found my current therapist. And then when I was super broke on food stamps in Portland, I went to a local college and their master degree, you know, counselors who were like one semester away from getting their degree, you know, they had to have like clinic hours for graduation. And so I used them. It was like fifteen dollars a session, but because I was on food stamps, I negotiated it to five dollars a session. And so that's also a great way. And then, you know, there are so many online communities now for help. And so I think as content creators, I know it's like we want to be the hub for all things and attract the audience and the hits and the page clicks but i also think it's really important for us to divert to other resources for things that we can't offer so it's like i'm not a therapist i you know can't do this i can't do that okay well i don't need to just be like i don't have the answers it's like no i can take that next step and show people because the thing is is as content creators as influencers whatever you want to call it people are watching people are listening and I've been doing this for seven years, you know, with Dear Dad and then now Mental Health and Wealth and Lola Retreat. And the main thing I've learned is that there are a lot more people watching and listening than you think. And I know this from my personal behavior too. It's like 99% of people are lurkers. You know, there's only 1% of people that actually comment and share and whatever. And so it's like, sometimes I get comments or emails out of the blue of like, I've been listening or watching you or reading you for like three years and it's like, oh wow. Like I had no idea. So just, you know, know that you have an impact and that people are listening, be able to provide resources. And then I think, you know, if you get a distressing email, don't ignore it because I get a ton of distressing emails and I answer every single one of them because to me, it's like, I could potentially save a life. I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly where they are, but if they're emailing me saying I want to kill myself, I mean, I'm not going to go so far to say that I have that power, but I don't know. You never know like what impact you're going to have on people. And so like so many people email me back and they're like, oh, I didn't think you were going to respond. And it's like, that's what they already think, that you're not going to respond. So even if you just have like a template of like, thanks for getting in touch. Like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Like, I can't help you with that. But here are X, Y, Z resources. Like, even if it's just a template to support people. And yeah, and I also think this is a great opportunity to support other content creators in your community that might be serving those people better. And that's where I think we can kind of get into more collaboration over competition. Like, okay, you guys have come to me, to my site about this issue, but actually this other blogger, you know, talks about that a lot more and they would be you know better served to help you. And so I think, you know, like I said, just acknowledging where your audience is, providing resources directly you know, being able to respond if people comment in distress or email in distress. And there's just really understanding that there's a, a nuanced financial situation for so many people and that we can't question the validity of their depression or their anxiety or their financial situation. Because, you know, I know it's easy for a lot of people who have never experienced these things to be like, okay, yeah, you're depressed. Okay. Yeah. You're anxious. Or like, I'm sure you're struggling with money. Like, it's the internet. A lot of people, you know, we don't take people seriously, but it's like just take them at face value and understand that if they feel like they're going through depression, anxiety, and financial stress, they are. So, how can we meet them where they are and serve them in the best way possible in a way that makes sense with our own content, with our own brand? And, like I said, I don't think we have to bend backwards if that's like not your brand or whatever, but you can at least A, acknowledge it exists and then B, you know, refer them to somebody else that talks about it.
1: And I'm going to jump in there both as a consumer of a massive amount of online content, but as someone who really deeply cares about the community, I'm going to say that one of the things that I would want content creators to know or do is remember that your voice, the words you choose matter. The tone you write it in matters. Wendy knows this because we're in the San Diego group together, the she's of High San Diego group together. I have a rule that's no shaming, no judging. Let's be kind. And the assumptions you make when you're writing I realize that that people who are creating content have to assume this is their target audience, but I want you to be careful a little bit and be sensitive to the ideas that we perpetuate. I think one of the things that has helped me greatly after my depression and my sense of being a loser, uh, completely a loser is that I redefine things like success. I redefined what enough is. I, you know, I focus on self care, but kindness that, that thing, Melanie, where you just reach out and acknowledge the email comes in. I'm going to tell you that's really big because so many people don't feel seen. So many people don't feel heard. And I don't know about you, but I used to hear things and I still do now. Get over it. And that frustrates the hell out of me because where's the compassion and empathy in that? And the pain is real. People are going through hard times. And when you ask the question again, is financial are finances related to depression and mental illness? I would say yes, because so much of our identity in this society is wrapped up with what we produce, how much we make, what clothing we wear, what brand we show, where do we live? What's our zip code? And, and we tie success into material goods. And so when we have those definitions that are concrete, that are tied to your job title too, it's all about identity. And when you don't have money or you have a, Huge, overwhelming amount of debt. It does impact your mental wellness. So there are things that I would do. If you're a content person, post a, an FAQ which includes like, if you're depressed, if you're suicidal, if you need help, here are some resources. NAMI is a great resource. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a good resource. Here's here's the nonprofit National Debt Counseling. And please don't pay for a debt counselor because those places are all shiesty. And and I said it. So seriously, there are so many ways that we can help each other. But my biggest one is let's keep the discussion open and nothing closes that discussion more than to be judgmental, to have the attitude of just get over it and tough it out. But acknowledging that people are going through rough times, it's a big thing.
4: I really appreciate that. I think one of the things that really helped me especially as like a content absorber someone who's reads a lot of content online i had to realize for myself that when someone is sharing their personal money journey they're talking about them right I can't interpret it as I have to do exactly what they're doing in order to be successful. Personal finance is really personal. And so there isn't just one way. And I think when you see these amazing stories online, you know, you feel like unless I'm reaching financial independence in three years or I'm copying exactly what they're doing, then I'm failing. But the reality is, any increase in your financial literacy is worth it right any any progress that you're making is worth it for you write your own story and at the end of the day you're the only one that you have to answer to right i mean for a long time i really idolized mr money mustache and i felt like bad about myself that i didn't enjoy riding a bike well i do things that i don't think he does that contribute to you know my lifestyle and and what i'm going for and i've actually even gotten to the place where I, I see a lot of posts online, especially like within Reddit, where people are talking about making themselves miserable in pursuit of this goal. And it to me, it's almost like just how in the financial independence community, we shun this idea of like the traditional American dream. And I think a lot of it is because many of us pursue that and we tick these boxes of what of getting these things that we deem successful and then we realize we don't feel the way that we thought we would feel when we reach that goal. I think that can be applied to the pursuit of financial independence. You you know you get out of debt, you get a 60% savings rate, you're on the path and it doesn't make you feel the way you thought it would make you feel because you're chasing someone else's dream. You're still taking it on as your own. So I think, you know, as people producing content don't present it like it is the only incorrect way. And for people absorbing content, take it with a grain of salt. They are just saying, this is what works for me. They're not saying, this is what's necessarily going to work with you, for you too. You're, you're the only person that can
1: decide that. And I would say also be authentic in your journey as a content creator. You know, Don't share just your wins. Let's show the things that you tried that didn't work out. Things that, that revelation that this wasn't all that that achieving this milestone didn't make you feel this way or made it all the better. But yeah, absolutely. Personal finance is personal. I don't know if you saw me like cheering you on when you said that, but it is, it is so personal.
2: Yeah. I wanted to kind of jump off to Jennifer's point about talk about the things that didn't work as well, because I think, you know, when we get into personal finance blogging and we're sharing our story, whether it's, I'm getting out of debt or I'm pursuing financial independence or I'm saving up to travel the world or whatever, you know, we're doing that part because we're trying to be accountable. We're trying to show people like our progress. And then I know when I was paying off my debt or like, like I said, when I was going through my breakup and I literally didn't save for like a whole year, I was so ashamed of that because I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm a fraud. Like I'm a personal finance blogger and a personal finance writer. And like, I'm not doing what I would tell myself to do. And, you know, it's kind of hard to admit that. But I think personal finance bloggers need to kind of check their ego at the door a little bit and say, if I present myself as a real human being that makes mistakes, people are going to relate to me more. People might even trust me more because I'm not just, hey, guys, I'm so perfect. I make all the right decisions all the time. No, like I used to post about when I didn't pay off as much debt as I wanted to this month, or like I got really burnt out with side hustling, so I just stopped for a week and didn't, you know, re- reach my income goal, or like, you know, when I was going through my breakup and I was like, I didn't meet my savings goal at all, and I'm not going to feel bad about it either because me going on a shame spiral and beating myself up about it, it's not going to do anything. I've done that in the past too. That certainly doesn't work, (laughs) you know, recognizing like, okay, this is what happened. So I think, you know, telling your truth, even if you're not perfect, even if you quote messed up is far more powerful for you and your audience than you like being this beacon of inspiration and perfection. And like, because you're a personal finance blogger, writer, you have all the answers. I don't think anybody has all of the answers. And I think that's especially true right now because given everything we're going through with the pandemic, with the economy, with the riots, the revolts, you know, the racism, everything that's going on right now, we're seeing a lot of these financial benchmarks kind of go out the window. Oh, save three to six months in your emergency fund. Hmm, How many of us would really like about a year or two right now? Save 10% in your 401k can we really be doing that right now? I don't know. Maybe like, you know, a lot of these like kind of benchmark things, this traditional advice that was used for so long. I don't know if we can really look at that accurately right now. So all of that to say is that the truth can change over time. Once more, Knowledge um, is accrued or or situations change. So I think, you know, sharing your situation and like what you're going through can be far more powerful as a learning tool and as a way to connect with your audience authentically.
1: Um, I would also say that if you test something and you try something and you learn something new and you've changed your mind or you pivoted, we reserve the right to write a I have now changed my opinion. And with new information, this is what my new belief is. And we should be okay with that. We should acknowledge that, that we grow and we change and our world expands as we get more knowledge and in, in life experience. And it's okay to veer off whatever was your rubric before.
3: Right. Wendy, if we're not careful, can we do harm as content creators?
0: I I think we can. And as everybody was talking and, you know, talking about, you know, not boxing in who you're speaking to your audience that acknowledging that, because we all like numbers, I mean, we wouldn't be in the personal finance space if we didn't like numbers. And so along with that comes like formulas, like do X, Y, and Z, and your finances will magically, you know, get better. So we like these numbers and so it's easy to sometimes want to, you know, box your audience in, but I also think that because we are content creators and because we are in this community that sometimes we can forget that we're not, well, we lose our focus instead of our focus being on our audience, it's more on how are we doing in comparison to other people? Like, are we growing? Are we, what are they doing? What products are they doing? What services are they doing? And how can I grow mine to be like that? And then you lose focus of, well, what are you really doing this for? Who are you really doing this for? And I think that's where some of the harm can come in is just not keeping your focus on, your audience to the people that you you're supposed to be trying to help.
3: I wanted to thank our guest panelists today. These are difficult conversations and it is courageous to tell your truth and uplifting to use that truth to help other people. And I think all four of you are doing just that. Melanie, final thoughts and where can people find you if they want more information?
2: My final thoughts are that it's really important to acknowledge that the mental health and money connection exists. And I also think that it's really important on all sides that we kind of separate our identity and our happiness from these external things like money and numbers and job and careers. And I think we're all kind of learning that right now in this situation, like we are worth so much more than all of these things right now. And, you know, how can we manage those to make them function in our own life, but also how can we find happiness and worth and purpose within without looking externally all the time. And I also think, you know, providing resources, like I said, the crisis text line, seven four one seven four one. also project semicolon. It's where I have my tattoo and my wrist and people can find me at mentalhealthandwealth.com, lolaretreat.com and dear.com. And I'm at Melanie Lockhart on all platforms.
3: Diana, last words, and where can we find you?
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're
4: struggling with your mental health, to just try to fight the the embarrassment over it. I think one of the best things that you can do is to ask for help. And you'd be really amazed the people that come out of the woodwork and step up to help. And you'd be surprised how many people are also struggling with the same thing, but you won't know unless you kind of take that first step in being vulnerable. That is that is something that really helped me. And you can find me at economyconference.com.
3: Jennifer, find your wisdom. And where can we find you if we want to get in touch with you?
1: Let's all as a community, as content creators, as professionals in the personal finance and Financial media space, let's all destigmatize mental illness and money. Let's be supportive. Let's be open. Let's provide content and be authentic. Let's post a FAQ with resources uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Crisis Text Lane, this Project Semicolon, which is also near and dear to me, too. And there's a Veteran Suicide. It is amazing. There are so many Americans that are in debt. I don't know the statistics worldwide, but I think the numbers are going to be rising after this crisis. Let's pull together as a community. Where can you find me? I'm in the Choose FI communities, almost all of them. <laughs> I am online at Facebook. Feel free to reach out to me if there's anything I can do to help. If you're ever in San Diego, shoot a message. The Choose Fi San Diego group usually likes to meet visitors. So it's always nice. And I've launched a coaching business to try and help other people as an accountability partner, as an educator to take that control back and to peel those layers back. I want to help people not feel so stressed out. So I'm around doc. Thank you.
3: And Wendy, bring us home and where can we find you?
0: Be kind and gracious to yourself that first and foremost, like give yourself some grace. And that it's okay to acknowledge that you know maybe you're not you're not where you want to be and where you thought you'd be, and that if you can just do one thing to to be good to yourself and take care of yourself, things will get better. And it is temporary. And then they can find me everywhere at House of Fi, House of Fi, is.com com, and then on YouTube. It's also House of Five.
3: This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Melanie Lockhart, Diana Miriam, Jennifer Ma, and Wendy Mays. That's a wrap. I wanted to remind you guys all to stop by the earn and invest website. It is a completely new site with bonus material, not just the podcast episodes, but also blog posts, as well as bonus video content. We are also going to do an episode about Ask Doc G Anything. This can be your financial questions. They can be questions about podcasting, the Earn and Invest podcast, or questions about me, Doc G. We've added SpeakPipe to the website. If you go to the top of the page or the bottom of the homepage, there are buttons on both places to leave us a voicemail. Go ahead, leave a voicemail asking your questions, and we will play them on our ask.g Anything episode that's going to come out soon. I'll also put this request out on Facebook, so if you prefer to avoid voicemail, you can write us a question out on Facebook. But I just wanted to get you ready for the future. It's going to be a really fun episode, and to remind you to check out the new Earn & Invest webpage. The address is earnandinvest.com. That's Earn earnandinvest.com com see you next time
0: awesome Thanks,
4: thank guys. you well, thank you so much Yay. I, I hope you good. guys felt
3: like that was a good mix of your stories yeah. pulling in finance and then what can be done yeah. There's, you could have spent two hours on each of those. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. I hope you don't feel like I was cutting you short at any point, but I wanted to round the conversation.
2: This is Melanie Locker, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Show. Podcast Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's definitely gone in the bloopers. All
2: right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have the mental health and wealth show, so I always just like have yep. this tendency of like sure. saying the Make, make
3: excuses fine. for why you muffed it. That's
2: now I fine. need to
1: write this down, you guys. All right. Okay,
2: all, right. all of y'all were perfect. Great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was just Melanie who's gonna end up on the bloopers. Darn it,
2: Melanie! I
1: actually wrote mine down. So. <laughs>
3: Seriously, though, guys, thank you for being courageous. I know that these are incredibly difficult conversations. It is hard to make yourself vulnerable. It's hard to tell these stories that are hurt. I mean, they hurt. It's hard. And the fact that you're willing to do it on multiple occasions, not just here, uh, really speaks to the fact that you want to help people. And uh, it's important. It's really, really important.